Well, thank you, Jimmy, for your testimony. Man, it's really encouraged by, um, by your heart, by your love for the Lord, love for the church. I feel like it's time for a group hug or something. <laughs> I remember high school. Man, yeah, it's like prison. Uh, <laughs> experiences there, very similar to mine. And uh, just, uh, you know, your desire to be faithful at your, where God placed you. That's, that's honoring to the Lord, but at the same time, um, you know, church is not a place where you know, children lead the church, where we can be taught and encouraged and instructed. And, and so many of you come from that kind of background where you try to be faithful, but no one's caring for your souls, no one's teaching you, setting good examples. And that's why we love Cornerstone, because oh, we're here together and we don't have to uh, ha- have our guards up. We can, have just, we can just uh, trust Christ and the leaders and the word here that's preached and learn and grow, and just um, be about just worshiping the Lord. So, um, we thank God. It's always good, isn't it, to hear from someone who just recently joined, to hear um, their new love for Christ, and new love for His bride. I look forward to just growing with you, and, and uh, serving, serving Christ for many years. While we continue to praise uh, God for all of you, uh, I was so encouraged by this past Friday night, gathering together for corporate prayer. Um, it's one of the sweetest times. The highlights of um, you know, this year has been when we gathered together to pray at the retreat and this past Friday. Uh, I was telling the admin team, we need to have more of these just prayer nights. And even just, maybe get some carpeting in here so we can pray like into the night, you know, bring pillows and sleeping bags and just pray and sleep and pray and sleep. And then go to Denny's for breakfast or something, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. We, we really rejoice um, in the partnership that we have, true partnership. It's not just an external, formal partnership, but it's really an intimate, personal, sacrificial partnership that is evidenced by our commitment to prayer to God for one another. And also, even last Sunday, you were giving to the Lord in a missions offering, uh, so much more than what we expected. We truly um, thank God for that kind of partnership. And even hearing about how many of you are personally sacrificing to give to the Lord, even housewives conducting uh, garage sales so that they might give the proceeds to the Lord. There was a wedding a few years ago where the couple said, we don't want any gifts. All cash gifts will be given to missions. I mean, that's how uh, we should give to the Lord for God's work for the gospel throughout the world. It shouldn't be the church having social activities, you know, like events and, and, and cafe nights or, or basketball tournaments where there's a social exchange and people give for those reasons. But it should really be a grassroots effort, each of us, because we love the gospel so much and we understand we have an obligation for the gospel to the lost. So we make practical efforts to support um, God's work throughout the world whether it be by praying, whether it be by giving, sending, or going ourselves, we personally are involved in that process of missions. It's not, you know, I'm part of this church that's involved in missions, or I'm part of this program, but ourselves, individually, our family, we're committed to missions. And to see that in each of your lives really rejoices our hearts and gives us greater fuel to uh, lean forward and take risks for the cause of Christ. Um, just again, I want to reiterate what Pastor Jason exhorted to you. 
Uh, please be in prayer for the Jungs. Uh, remember the Shims, they're out there, they're coming back. I think Jones said they're coming back in June. Right? Maybe that was like, I don't know if she said that or not, that's what I think I heard, but um, she's got two more months to go actually. She's coming back in, in August. I mean, when she said she missed us, you could see um, just her heart um, being expressed through her words. They missed us so much, but yet they're faithful there. So let's remember them in prayer um, that they'll be able to return safely. There'll be great joy had by everyone. Dale and Joan were telling us as their time in there is coming to an end, they realize, wow, they could have done so much more. They, could have, they should have witnessed more, been more forceful for the gospel. They should have sacrificed more. I mean, what good heart. They've done so much, yet their heart is, they wish they could have done more. So, uh, what faithful examples to all of us. But let's also remember uh, Joan Elaine getting ready to go and um, 18 months overseas, continue to work <clears throat> that Dale and Jones started. Let's remember them in prayer. And they're just, you know, putting their furniture in storage, uh, just taking care of their cars, their taxes. I mean, there's, there's so many things. Insurance, um, just saying goodbye to family and friends and to us. So, so much preparation that's involved in going overseas for the long term. And they desperately need your prayers. And one more thing. Uh, this man needs prayer, our elder Bob Hahn. Got two weeks to go for his elder ordination. You know, what an example. As a lay elder, he's not, he's not doing this as a formality, as a, just an external show where we kind of like, you know, lay hands. And he's an elder. He wants to go to the gauntlet and be tested in his Bible knowledge, be tested in systematic theology and practical ministry. He's a man with three children. I mean, he's got a full-time job. I mean, he's an executive of a major corporation. I mean, he pretty much runs this multi-million dollar company. So he's got just demands and responsibilities a full plate. And yet he's giving himself to study the Bible so that he'd be a man approved to teach and shepherd the flock here at Cornerstone. His effort is a reflection of his love for the Lord and love for all of you, love for each of you. So I exhort you to pray for him and remember him as you are on your knees uh, and encourage him and support him. And what an example for all future flock shepherds and all future lay elders where, um, you know, as he's ordained and he'll be on the council next time, he's not going to show any mercy to anyone else who dares to aspire to the office of the elder. He's going to unload uh, with every question you can think of uh, because he went through um, uh, a rigorous test as well. So that's in two weeks. And during the second hour, uh, Ken Johnson, an elder of Christ Our Hope Bible Church, will come and we'll do a test in front of you, in front of everyone. We'll lay hands on him according to the scriptures and formally, officially ordain him as an elder of our beloved church. Well, let's get to our study of one more thing. Oh, one more thing. Uh, Huey and Susan and uh, Dave and Silvana are in um, Mexico right now doing a scouting trip for this summer's Mexico Missions uh, BBS outreach. So that's the reason there's four, there are four empty seats here. They're not sleeping in. You know, they're not goofing around. They're doing the Lord's work. The best reason to have empty seats at church is when they're doing the Lord's work. Just remember them today and pray for them. Just two um, uh, just, uh, families committed to the Lord. They're just... Um, a lean, mean ministry team, the, the Dangs and the West. I mean, especially Dave and Savannah. I'm so shocked and surprised by them, how God is using them in so many ways. It's just, uh, 
it is really a, a joy to see how much Dave and Savannah have grown and, and how God is using them. So let's remember them as well. Great. Well, John 19, verses 31 through 37. I want to remind you again that the focus of John's gospel is not the suffering, the pain, the torture of the cross. John mentions the cross almost in a cursory manner with uh, three words in the Greek. In John 19, verse 18, he mentions that he was crucified because John wants us, the readers of the gospel, to focus not on the physical torture of the cross, but he wants us to understand that our Lord is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah. The long-awaited Messiah who will deliver God's people from their sins was being fulfilled before his very eyes as he stood in Calvary and observed Christ being crucified. The four prophecies were being fulfilled, two before his death and two after his death. Verse 24, John 19, this was to fulfill Scripture. Verse 28, to fulfill Scripture. 36, 37, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And again, another Scripture says, he points to the fulfillment of Scripture again and again for the sole purpose that you might believe that these Jewish readers who understand the Old Testament prophecies might be convinced might be persuaded that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed what the inscription said He was. He is the King of the Jews. He is the Son of God. And by believing in His name, you may have life. You may have eternal life. John 20, verse 31. Last week, we, we studied together the death of Christ. Verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished, and bowed His head, and gave up His Spirit, and He gave His life on our behalf for the glory of God. But we find that the story is not over yet. The drama still continues. There are two more prophecies yet to be fulfilled. And it is mind-boggling. It is I was humbled to study uh, this passage and just consider the precision in time and the precision in the, specific, uh, the special, special uh, particularity of the fulfillment of prophecies. I mean, I'm just running out of words to describe just the incredible precision in the prophecies that were fulfilled in, the, in verses 31 through 37. We'll go through it together. In verses 36 and 37, John discloses the significance, the, the meaning behind uh, the actual events. Let's start with verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation. Day of preparation. This is Friday, late afternoon. Saturday was not only the Sabbath. Starting 6 p.m. Friday night, Sabbath begins. Even in, in, in Israel now, you go to Israel, Friday night, 6 p.m., all the shops close. All the markets close their doors. So the heavy shopping uh, time is Friday morning, early afternoon, even early late afternoon. Because everything shuts down at 6 p.m. because Sabbath has begun. So Friday was considered the day of preparation, where you did all the preparation for the Sabbath. Because on the Sabbath, you did no work. 
No cooking, no baking, no cleaning. Everything is to be done by 6 p.m. so you can celebrate the Sabbath, the Saturday, consecrated to the Lord. Yet this was a special Saturday. It was the Saturday of Passover where they would celebrate their redemption from Egypt as a people of God and they would sacrifice the Passover lamb and remember God's faithfulness to the people of Israel. So not only was it the day of preparation, but it was a special day where the pilgrims, pilgrims packed Jerusalem so there was even greater preparation uh, was necessary. Therefore, this day was key and it was a day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. Where the Sabbath again was a high holy day, the Jews asked Pilate, verse 31, that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. These Jews wanted the bodies to be removed because according to Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, if anyone commits a crime worthy of death and is hanged on a tree, his body is not to hang there overnight. It is to be removed before the Passover began, removed by evening. So these Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the members of the Sanhedrin, Desiring to apply this passage at this point, asked Pilate that our Lord and the robbers be removed before the Passover began. Now, it's around little after 3 p.m. Little after 3 p.m. At this time, they would begin slaughtering the Passover lambs in the temple. They would begin the 2.1 million Jews that are gathered in, his, in Jerusalem, they began slaughtering the Passover lambs as a substitute sacrifice for the people of Israel. It was at this time, consider the precision of timing, it was at this time our Lord gave His life. Our Lord Himself, our Passover lamb, voluntarily laid His life down on our behalf. And so around this time, before 6 p.m., the Jews asked that the bodies be removed, verse 31b, that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, it was common for those crucified to linger on the cross for several days because no vital member of the body was directly affected. Um, they would linger for days going through excruciating pain, but it was natural for those who were hanging to still be alive two or three days later. The Jews saw this, and you understood, unless they took active measures to prevent it, the body of our Lord and the robbers would still be hanging through the Sabbath and through Passover Saturday. So they asked Pilate that their legs might be broken to speed their death Bodies might be lowered before the great Sabbath. Now here, verse 31b is an example of the scrupulous observance of the law by these Jewish leaders. I mean, look at their hypocrisy. They wanted to be sure to keep the minutiae of the law while they killed and murdered God's only son. 
they were concerned about this minute detail of Old Testament law, and yet they murdered the one who fulfilled the law, kept the law in its fullness. Our Lord rightly spoke of them in Matthew 23, 23-28. He exposed their hypocrisy, exposed the corruption, that it was all external religion. There was no inward uh, tenderness of heart to obey the law of God out of genuine faith. It was all mere pretense, external religion, prompted by pride. Remember Matthew 23, 23, Christ said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! And He called them hypocrites. For you tithe, mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You blind guides, you're leading people astray. You're straining out a gnat, and yet you're swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Again, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you are outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Our Lord's indictment is proven true by verse 31. Here is someone they knew was innocent of all the charges. They've trumped up false witnesses, accused him, and they're crucifying on the cross, and they're concerned about obeying Deuteronomy 21. They're concerned about ceremonial obedience to the law. And yet, while well, they have just committed murder of the Messiah. Well, Pilate, not wanting to store a riot in the city during this high holy day, acquiesces to their request. He commands the soldiers to break their legs. The soldiers respond by going to the thieves and breaking their legs. Verse 32, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. The Greek word for break, kataaxan, here signifies to, to shiver into pieces, crushed to pieces, to crack apart. A large mallet was used to shatter the legs completely. Obviously, tremendous pain and agony was associated with the breaking of the bones. Because they were hung on the cross, the only support that held them up was eliminated. It resulted in the slumping of the body, intensifying of the pain, Suffocation of the internal organs, which brought on death much more swiftly. Obviously, soldiers went from one side to the other with a large mallet. They broke the bones of the first thief and they came to Christ. They perceived he was dead. They moved on to the other robber, crushed his bones, and they came back to Christ. But they began with the robbers. Now, there's some important insights here. 
Here is yet another fulfillment of Christ's prophecy. Remember one robber, he exercised faith in his dying hour. He said, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? It was common for man to linger on the cross for two, three, four days. But he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. And that was fulfilled. This robber died that day. Another important point, Bishop Rao says, it is noteworthy for us that the penitent thief, even after conversion, had to suffer before he entered paradise. The grace of God, Rao says, and the pardon of sin did not deliver him from the agony of the cross or the agony of having his legs broken. When Christ undertook to save his soul, and when Christ undertakes to save your souls, He does not undertake to deliver us from bodily pains, end quote. Very important, isn't it? Conversion does not mean that we are saved from pain and suffering in life. It means, doesn't mean this free ticket, you know, this, this the credit card with unlimited amount where we can use, where we're absolved and and, and freed from any kind of difficulties or challenges or, or sufferings in life. When Christ saved this robber, He didn't lower him from the cross. He, he stayed on the cross. And His legs were broken. But God, our Lord, saved him from spiritual agony of hell. Delivered him from hell into paradise. That was Paul's message in Acts 14. 21 through 22, as he went to all these cities, returning to them and doing follow-up, encouraging them in the faith after they had believed in, believed in Christ in the first missionary journey. He went, strengthened their souls, encouraged them in the faith, and told them that through many tribulations they will enter the kingdom of God. That they will enter God's kingdom through many tribulations, through much suffering. How opposite of the, is, is this with the gospel of our, of our society, of our Christian culture, where it's all about material blessing, it's all about um, physical prosperity, you know, marital bliss, it's all about the positive aspects of what Christ will do for us. And yet, here is the robber hanging on the cross and his legs were broken and yet his heart, his soul was saved. What is more important though is verse 33. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. These Roman soldiers were trained executioners. They had done this countless times. These soldiers who are responsible for carrying out the crucifixion must ensure and verify that the men crucified were indeed dead. If someone were to escape, or someone were to have, found, to have not died on the cross, these very soldiers would be crucified as a means of their punishment. They would meet the same death. Pilate gave explicit orders that their legs are to be broken 
they would not dare to disobey the governor's orders unless they were absolutely sure that the Lord was dead already. John emphasizes the certainty of Jesus' death. He says the soldiers testify to the death of Christ. He did not die in a, in a private area. He did not die before just a few witnesses who were his, his adherents. No, he died in public. And these Roman soldiers who had no vested uh, interest, who had no connection to Christ, verified his death. For them, his death had no meaning whatsoever, except that their job was coming to a conclu- com- completion. And these Roman soldiers verified the death of Christ. John devotes in his precious gospel four verses telling us that Jesus died, that He actually died, that His death was not a mere semblance. He was not feigning death. He, was, he wasn't fainting. He wasn't in a swoon. It was real. His death was real. Even describes how blood and water flowed from His side. Where there was no movement on the part of Christ. He was clearly dead. Why such an emphasis on Christ's death? The certainty of Christ's death? Because, brothers and sisters, our salvation hinges entirely on our Lord's vicarious death. His death is our life. We are saved solely by His death on the cross. No other way to God except Christ dying on Calvary. Everything, I mean everything, I mean the Bible, our faith, our prayers, our obedience, our evangelism, our missions effort, everything we are, everything we hold true, hold dear, everything that is precious to us is contingent upon our Lord dying on the cross. On this single event, if our Lord did not die on the cross, as our enemies contend, He merely swooned. He came down and He lived a long life. You know, got married, had children, and He died later. Then all is lost. The bar Apostle Paul's words, we are to be more pitied than among all men. We are the greatest fools in the world if Christ did not die here in John 19 on the cross. You know, even in the first century, during John's lifetime, he heard such ridiculous um, assertions, such uh, you know, hypotheses, such uh, myths and fables about Jesus not dying. That's why he includes in verse 35, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. John is saying, look, I know all these uh, accusations, all these theories abound, but I was there. I'm a primary witness. I saw it with my own eyes. It's not something that I heard second hand. I saw him die. His legs were not broken because he was already dead, but he was pierced with a sword and I saw water and blood flow from his side. Who are we going to believe? An eyewitness account or somebody who wasn't even there? writing some letter 100, 200, 300 years later or the testimony of John who saw with his own eyes. First John 1, 1, 2, and 3. John says again, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our own hands, we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life. John saying, I was there, I saw my own eyes, and I verified, testified, I know it's true. This is the truth. They did not break his legs because he was already dead. But verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. No movement. No sign of life. We're uncertain why the soldier did this. It was just a judgment call on his part. He could have very well broken the legs of Christ, but he chose instead to take his spear and pierce the side of Christ. Now, we have to ask, why did John go into all this detail about the preparation day? You know, why tell us about the Jews asking Pilate to remove the bodies? Why did John tell us to, about Jews asking the legs to be broken and Pilate, you know, uh, consenting to their request and the soldiers breaking the legs of the robbers and, okay, Jesus' legs weren't broken but his side was pierced. Like, John, like, you know, like too much information or too much unnecessary information. What is the reason behind all these facts? These are not a random chain of events. 36 and 37, here are the two prophecies. Two last prophecies fulfilled by Christ according to John. Verse 36, where these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Hence the title of the sermon. Our Passover Lamb and our pierced Lord. These weren't just random events that these um, non-believers brought upon Christ, the Jews and soldiers. No, this was orchestrated by the master conductor, our God in heaven. He sovereignly orchestrated the intimate details of all these events, moved the hearts of these men and their decisions to fulfill these two prophecies so that Jesus Christ might be our Passover lamb and our pierced Lord. Let's look more closely into these uh, two prophecies. Verse 36, not one of his bones will be broken. Give you a quick background of the Passover lamb. Let me summarize it to you. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the Passover lamb. The last judgment of the nation of Egypt while Israel was held in captivity as slaves in, in, in the nation of Egypt. The final uh, punishment was an angel of death will go through the land of Egypt and every firstborn son will die. Every firstborn son will die. But God made a special provision for the nation of Israel. On the first month of the year, according to their calendar, on the 14th day, they were to bring in a lamb. A lamb without blemish or defect. And I'll kind of cut to the chase. A lamb who's never had his legs broken. They were to bring in this lamb to their home for five days. On the fifth day, they are to slaughter this lamb. 
get a hyssop branch, dip that branch into the bowl of this of the blood of the lamb, and mark on the doorposts of their house. On that fateful day when the angel of death went through the nation of Egypt, you heard mourning and wailing in every household, except for those Jews who were obedient and sacrificed the Passover lamb and marked their homes with the lamb's blood. The angel passed over that household and that firstborn son was spared. Hence, the Passover lamb. That's the Old Testament type of the Messiah that is to come. And so John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet, he is proclaiming the coming of the king and coming of the kingdom. And he is there baptizing those who are repenting and, and seeking to follow God. And he sees Jesus in John 1.29. And what did he say? What did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. First Peter 1, 18 and 19, you know that we were redeemed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. A what? Everyone. A what? A lamb. Right? Come on. A lamb without blemish or defect. Revelation 5, 6, Then I saw a lamb, John says looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of God's throne. In fact, the book of Revelation speaks of Jesus as a lamb 28 times. Jesus as a lamb of God. Apostle Paul says it right. Summarizes it well. 1 Corinthians 5.7 Corinthians 5.7 Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The Jews make a request, a seemingly unimportant request. Can you break their legs? Our religion says it's not right to have a man hanging a tree overnight, especially on a holy day. Pilate would just break their legs. Pilate says, sure, I'll break their legs. In fact, it's a compassionate thing to do. Right? They'll, they'll, they'll limit their suffering. But if this had been done to Christ then we can throw away our Bibles. Right? Then God is a liar. Uh, all of Christian, all the whole New Testament is a sham. You know, we're fools. We're still in our sins. There's no hope. Right? We can maybe try to say, okay, from now on I'm going to obey God. A wrathful God awaits me. He knows my sins. Hell, hell indeed awaits me and I have no hope and I'm going to try to live a righteous life from this moment on. I'm never going to sin again and yet we will fail a few minutes later. And we are without hope and only the impending judgment of God and eternal hell awaits us if these soldiers broke his legs. Because Numbers 9.12 clearly says his legs must not be broken. His legs must not be broken. If his bones have been broken by the soldiers, he does not meet the demands of the law, he does not meet the qualifications to be the Passover lamb, his sacrifice is unfit, he is unworthy, all is lost, we are still in our sins. 
you could not have a single bone broken. That's why even the timing of his death is amazing. Jesus had to endure the full, drink the full cup of God's wrath and die before the soldiers arrived with the mallet to crush his legs in order to fulfill prophecy. Jesus controlled his death down to the minutest detail. He sandwiched his death between the prophecy of the soldiers giving him vinegar to drink. He must say, I thirst, and drink that vinegar to fulfill prophecy. And yet he must die before they come with a mallet to break his legs. If his death had occurred at any other time, before drinking of the cup, of the vinegar, or after, because his legs were broken, God's prophetic truth would have been broken. But God is sovereign. He fulfills Psalm 34.20. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. He is indeed the Passover lamb. A lamb without blemish and defect. He is indeed the Messiah. He is the Son of God who redeems us from our sins. Second one, second prophecy that John points to. It's actually not fulfilled in its fullness. But John refers to it in verse 37 in Zechariah 12.10. They will look on him whom they have pierced. Turn with me to the book of Zechariah. One of the minor prophets. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So you start from Matthew, go back two books and you'll find. Second to the last book of the Old Testament is Zechariah. I was explaining this to Serena and I asked her, well, will I lose people if I share this? She said, you sure will because you lost me. Right? So I thought about how do I, what do I do? So I just have to do my best. And you have to do your best. So I don't lose you and you don't lose me. But here's a Zach- prophecy of Zechariah being fulfilled, or partially fulfilled in a sense. And I'll explain in John 19.37. Many scholars describe Zechariah as the most messianic of all the Old Testament books. Because in its brief 14 chapters, it contains eight specific references, prophecies to the Messiah. George Robinson aptly terms the book, quote, the most messianic, the most truly apocalyptic and eschatological of all the writings of the Old Testament. Zechariah contains more allusions to the coming Messiah than all the other minor prophets combined. I mean, one that's familiar to all of you is Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a coal, the fowl of a donkey that was Fulfilled in John 12, prophesied in Zechariah 9. Now, the prophecy that's being fulfilled here is in Zechariah chapter 12. And the reference is not to Calvary. It's not to 2,000 years ago. Zechariah 12 is talking about a future day. Future to Zechariah future to 2,000 years ago in John 19, and future to you and I. Future prophecy 
that describes the scene that will happen after seven years of tribulation against the nation of Israel, where the Lord Himself will come and restore Israel's glory and establish His kingdom. Um, There was a movie out uh, several months ago called Munich. I was talking to someone uh, about this movie, this war between uh, Palestine and Israel. Um, It's about um, Black September, September 1972 in the Olympic Village in Munich, Germany called the Munich Massacre, 11 Israeli athletes were kidnapped by Palestinian terrorists and murdered. Simon Reeve, a British journalist, wrote that the Munich Massacre was one of the most significant terror attacks of recent times, one that thrust the Palestinian cause into the world spotlight, set the tone for decades of conflict in the Middle East, and launched a new era of international terrorism. It didn't start in 72. It started in Genesis with Abraham, right? And it's not going to end today. It's going to continue. That conflict in the Middle East between Israel and all her neighboring countries will not come to an end until Zechariah 12. Zechariah 12. This conflict that has been raging since the birth of Israel, it won't end until Yahweh Himself, the Lord Himself, will come. And after seven years of devastating suffering to the nation of Israel, that will culminate on the nations laying siege on the city of Jerusalem, until then, it will not be over. But at that time, the Lord will save Israel. The Lord will save His people, physically and spiritually. Let's go through this chapter um, in a survey manner. Verses 2 through 6, Zechariah employs two vivid metaphors to describe Jerusalem's plight. A cup and a stone. Verses 2 and 3, a cup and a stone. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. The word picture is that Jerusalem is compared to a large cup, a large bowl. That will be filled with wine and all the nations will lay siege in it, on it. And they will attempt to drink this cup, drink this bowl. In other words, these nations will have the intention of draining Jerusalem, removing it forever. However, it will all backfire. When they drink the liquid from the cup, it will make them drunk, they will tremble, stagger, and they will fall. It will not be the cup, it will not be Jerusalem that is destroyed. It will be the nations that are destroyed. They will attack Jerusalem. They will not not succeed. In fact, they will be the ones who will be destroyed. The, The very same thing will happen when the nations seek to remove the stone that is impeding their plans. Verse 3, All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. It will roll back on them. will destroy them. A graphic fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. Genesis 12.3 I will bless all those who bless you. And I will curse 
all who dishonor you. Verses 7 through 9 talks about uh, the physical salvation of, of Israel. The physical salvation. Not just the destruction of those who lay siege against Israel and Jerusalem, but there will be a physical salvation of Israel. The Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first. A figure for Jews who live outside of Jerusalem. Those who live outside the land of Israel because of the diaspora. They're living in temporary shelters like tents. God will grant them a physical redemption. Not only that, they will, He will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Verse 7 and 8. These are the Jewish people hold up within the city during the last stand in the Armageddon campaign. And yet, God will deliver them. God will grant them corporate physical salvation. Just as God physically delivered them in Exodus from Egypt, so again, God will physically deliver them in that future great day of the Lord's return. But something is different. In Exodus, the weakness was not in the law of God. But the weakness was with the people. Remember Moses, uh, in the journey to the wilderness, he said, these are a stiff-necked people. Their hearts are hardened towards you. They are rebellious people. Right? And God said, I will destroy them and start over with you, Moses. Right? The weakness was the sinfulness of man. God, understanding this, enacted a new covenant which is fulfilled in Zechariah 12.10. Remember the new covenant? I mean, I'm, I'm losing you guys here. The Mosaic covenant was the Ten Commandments. You obey these commandments, you will be my people, I will be your God. I will defend your cause. Right? I will, you will be my people. Right? I will surround you. But Israel failed to obey God's law. So God enacts a new unilateral covenant new promise of the nation of Israel. Uh, listen to Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Instead of the law being written in tablets of stone, through the Holy Spirit, I will write it on their hearts. They'll be a redeemed people, not just physically, but spiritually. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Ezekiel prophesied concerning this uh, new covenant as well. Ezekiel 36, 25-29. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes that you might be careful to obey my rules. And so here, 
in Zechariah 12.10, Zechariah prophesizes to this future day, restoration of Israel, where God Himself would not just redeem Israel physically, but He will save them spiritually. Zechariah 12.10 Here is the spiritual salvation of Israel I will pour out in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy so that when they look on me whom they have pierced they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Right, we have to stop here. I mean, I have in my notes the word stop. Capital letters. Such a remarkable verse in the Word of God. Zechariah 12.10. I first, uh, I was first, uh, someone, Dr. Will Varner explained this verse to me, Zechariah 12.10, in Jerusalem, five years ago, uh, during my seminary trip. Right. You're learning it in Garden Grove, but it's good enough. Garden Grove, Jerusalem. What's important is Zechariah 12.10. Throughout this chapter, the I who is speaking has always been the Lord. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 6, verse 9. It is that same Lord, creator of the heavens and the earth, who will not only pour out His Spirit on Jerusalem inhabitants, but who will also be looked to as one whom they had earlier pierced. They will look on Him whom they had previously pierced, past tense. The language is clear and exactly translates to Hebrew original. They will look on Him whom they had previously pierced. The word pierced, the car, translates a Hebrew word that is used elsewhere in the Old Testament for an act that inflicts violent death. It is clear that the one who will receive this gaze of faith is the one who has been killed by a violent act. Furthermore, that one who has been pierced is the Lord Himself. Now again, now don't stop and just pause for a minute. How could the Lord be pierced? How could... Let's say uh, tribulation occurs next year, right? So seven years later, Israel, they're being besieged by the surrounding nations. Our Lord will come down and they will look on Him whom they had pierced in the past. Who, who is Zechariah talking about? How could the future Jewish remnant look for deliverance from whom, who was not only killed, but was killed by them? This verse makes sense only in Jesus Christ. Only according to John 19.37. Only because it was the day of preparation. Only because the Jews wanted the bodies lowered. Only because Pilate consented to the Jews' request. And the soldiers went and broke the robbers' legs. But Jesus had already given His life. The timing of it. Jesus was already dead. If he was alive, they would have broken his legs. But he was already dead. So instead of breaking his legs, they pierced his side. And so, he was pierced for our transgression. 
And John sees that and says, in Zechariah 12.10, talks about how Israel will look on him and mourn on him whom they had pierced. When was he pierced? At this moment, John 19.37. Do you see here the incredible accuracy of Scripture? I mean, look, put your hand on Zechariah 12. Quickly go to John 19.37. It doesn't say another Scripture is fulfilled. John 19, Zechariah 12.10 is not fulfilled in on John 19.37. John says, another Scripture says, because the piercing has been fulfilled, but not the part that says, they shall look on Him. So John doesn't say Scripture is fulfilled. says, Scripture says. Go back to Zechariah 12. Look at what happens to Israel. They will look upon Him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child. Weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This is repentance. This is contrition. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be great, as great as the mourning for Hadar Riman in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn. This mourning, this repentance, this, this uh, re- returning to God extends to every level of Jewish society. Each family by itself. The family, the house of David by itself. And their wives by themselves. The family, the house of Nathan by itself. And their wives by themselves. The priestly tribe, the family, the house of Levi by itself. And their wives by themselves. The family of Shemites by themselves. And their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves, they will mourn and wail and weep over the Messiah for they had pierced him. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. God still has a plan for Israel. God has not rejected them forever. I was going to go into Romans 11, but say it for another time. Where Paul says, a partial hardening has taken place, but on account of election, they are still God's people. When the full number of Gentiles has come in, all Israel shall be saved. There will come a time when every Jewish person will believe in the Messiah because they will all see Him and they will repent and mourn over what they had done and trust in Him as their Lord and Savior. Revelation 1.7 Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. A few closing thoughts for our time. Uh, even though we believe, because we believe in the testimony of the Scriptures, and we see to the eyes of faith our, our beautiful Lord fulfilling all prophecies, fulfilling all scripture. 
laying his life down on our behalf. Lord, we marvel and we are brought low at your sovereignty. We affirm, O oh God, we loudly declare that we have no control, that we can't fulfill anything, that we can't plan anything, that our, our, we have desires and wishes and hopes and dreams, but the actual events are beyond our abilities. But you, O oh God, you are so powerful and mighty. You all cause all things to come to pass. And nothing is too difficult for you. Even the precise fulfillment of these prophets in the Old Testament fulfilled in the life and death of our Lord. Lord, may that cause us to trust you for our lives. Trust you, O God, for our faith, our salvation, and also for our sanctification. Cause us, O Lord, not to trust in our own works, our own efforts, our own plans, our own diligence. Help us not to trust in in religious works or even rituals, O God. May the marvelous description of your sovereignty in John 19 cause us to trust in you, to hope in you and to believe in the finished work of Christ to fully save us and to make us holy into the image of Christ. Oh God, we pray for the lost in this world. We also pray for all those people of Israel that who are still enemies of the cross, who are still apart and remain as enemies of you. Oh God, that you would speed your return so that your people might receive the glory and the promises given to them that they might behold the purest Messiah, the Lamb that was slain, and be saved and be redeemed from the, and ransomed from their sins. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your Son. We thank you in the perfect way you have given Him to us that we might trust in you, that we might live lives of worship and humble obedience unto you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.